Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Welcome back to our podcast. Over our next four episodes, Donna will delve into her early days at Dr. Pepper. In today's episode, she shares behind the scenes stories from filming her iconic TV and radio spots, as well as co-hosting the Dr. Pepper Celebrity Party, a TV special on ABC with the one and only Dick Clark. And we end with a special treat a sneak preview of Donna's interview with Alison Martino, television producer and historian of all things mid-century as curator of the fabulous online community Vintage Los Angeles. In our second episode, you'll get to hear Donna and Alison's full interview before our third episode where Donna and I, as usual, delve into her memories. We round out with a fourth episode where Donna lets you into her story of preparing to be introduced as the Dr. Pepper girl in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, the day President Kennedy lost his life to an assassin's bullet. But now onto this episode. Donna, your friendly pepper upper is more bubbly than ever, at least in front of the camera, but the shadow side of life becomes a cloaked doppelganger. Go, Donna. Chapter 5. These are the good times. Signing a seven-year contract at age 16 required a court approval. The court designated to approve of a minor's consent to work was in downtown Los Angeles. Photographers from the Los Angeles Times and the Herald Examiner took my picture right after I signed my contract and the next day I appeared on the front page. $250,000 contract signed by Donna Lauren, the article quoted. It was a feat my parents were planning for, and Maury made it official that now he would become my full-time manager. It was pretty clear to my mother that she needed to show me some reward for achieving this goal. Possibly in a different family circumstance, the money that was designated by contract would go toward my future. And yes, 20% did, but there had only been a plan to basically take care of all family needs once I, we achieved success. My reward for signing a contract that would take care of my family for seven years was the freedom to change my bedroom for the first time. I did have my own bedroom, and that was a plus. But after my first asthma attack, the space that should have brought me comfort and helped me explore my fantasies became very dark. My parents filled my head with fear of being kidnapped, and so they installed bars on my window. To make matters worse, they only covered one of the two windows in my room. My mother decided that the side window directly in front of me where my bed faced was the one that someone could get into more easily. Therefore, bars were chosen for that location. What it did to my mind was hypnotize me to focus on the bars and what they represented. It was so confusing for me to stare at the bars on one window, the window that someone, a kidnapper, would climb into versus the one that looked out onto the street, which was in plain view and literally made me feel like I was living in a fishbowl. 
my eyes would finally give way to the night and sleep would come. In my dreams, I saw a faceless man wearing a big black coat. He was holding a knife and chased me down a dark, empty pier. I ran to the end, but instead of jumping into the water, I laid down into submission. Lying on my back, he began stabbing me over and over again. I didn't bleed and I didn't die. I also couldn't speak or cry out for help. I thought if I played dead, he'll stop and go away. Then I woke up. I had that dream or nightmare repeatedly until I was about 11 or 12 years of age. The opportunity to transform the energy in my bedroom liberated a great deal of my fears and lifted me out of some sort of depression. The awareness of something greater than myself became very present. A brighter light evolved in my new space. This was a time for not only for my career to shine, but also my spirit. The light inside me. Reflecting this attitude was perfectly expressed with the mod look, and so I chose a soft tissue pink shag carpet to match my new walls and completed the look with white furniture that gave my space an expansive feeling. For sentimental reasons, I kept a lamp given to me by my maternal grandmother that didn't match the decor. The one reminder of the past was the inhaler I kept in the drawer of my new nightstand. The newfound freedom to express myself in my own bedroom was the greatest gift I ever received. Across from my bed was a matching white vanity, ultra-modern design, with two shallow drawers on one side that extended to a platform which supported a full-length mirror. How many images of the persona I created were reflected in that glass. All the furniture had tapered white legs with a brass band at the bottom. Next to my vanity was a desk of the same style, a place I could conceivably do my homework. Just when was I going to have time to do homework? I asked for my own phone, a princess phone, of course, got a pink one with push buttons, the latest style. When I closed my door, I was in London or New York, but actually, I was in heaven. The finishing touches were wooden shutters on my windows. No longer would I tread ever so lightly on my terrain with only thin shades covering them. No longer would I have to stare at the bars on the one window my mother decided was so dangerous for me. Now, as a teenage girl, I spent my spare time making pillows for my bed. I collected felt and began cutting out shapes of flower petals, white for daisies and red for roses, and embroidered yellow felt to emulate the pistol and the stamen. It was a little like Alice in Wonderland, one of my favorite childhood stories and animated movies. The only annoying thing I had to live with was the overhead light, which was my primary light source. 
It was just too bright and dimmers did not exist in my life in those times. The time I had in my room would be limited. Due to my upcoming travels for Dr. Pepper, I missed my room, my sanctuary, when I began sharing a room regularly with Maury. No sooner had the fresh paint on the walls dried that my mother received my itinerary for making commercials for TV and radio. My parents had never made school a priority in my life. They thought that I was born with a natural talent. The decision was made that I was to leave my high school and in good conscience enroll in a small private high school where I wouldn't have to attend much, but just send in my work to receive a diploma. My parents' attitude was that this was the acceptable thing to do. I told my friend Janice, a fiery five-foot-one curly redhead who I'd been classmates with since eighth grade. She comforted me and she said she would make sure I'd receive a graduation invitation from Venice High School so I could attend my own prom. I went to my music class and spoke to Mr. Paney, the band leader for our school orchestra, the Crescendos. He told me I could sing at the prom if I wanted. He even suggested that I could help raise money for the band by performing when I had time. Before I left school, I did a fundraiser in the school auditorium to a full house. We raised enough money to buy a new drum set. I sang my record on the Good Ship Lollipop and If You Love Me, as well as other songs. Mr. Paney had music charts for Get Happy, a song I very often opened with on many performances. Whatever normalcy I had of being a teenage student disappeared overnight. The faces of familiar people, students, and teachers were rapidly becoming only a memory. Janice was one of my only links to any adolescent experiences that were unrelated to my career. In the summer of 1963, I said goodbye to my school days and hello to a full-time career. Maury and I were again flown first class on American Airlines red carpet style back to Chicago where the filming of TV commercials would be done. I would then record all the radio jingles there too. This was an exciting time for my family. Strangely, my sense of responsibility prevented me from experiencing a certain joy. Actually, singing the radio jingles were some of my happiest times. Call me weird, but the truth is that singing is my expression of freedom. That was my introduction to Good times begin with Dr. Pepper, distinctively different Dr. Pepper, not a cola or a root beer, a taste that you'll cheer. Relax, refresh, enjoy it now. It's Dr. Pepper time. Played to the melody of Glow Little Glowworm, apparently a popular song that was considered public domain. It's Dr. Pepper time! Dr. Pepper time! Oh, good times begin with Dr. Pepper. Distinctively different Dr. Pepper. Not a cola or a root beer. A light and lively taste that you'll cheer. The lift is great, the flavor fine. It's Dr. Pepper time! Hi, Dick Clark, together with Donna Lauren. 
here's the day's best idea. Relax, refresh, enjoy Dr. Pepper, the distinctively different soft drink for today's light and lively taste. That's Dr. Pepper for fun-filled flavor and light-hearted lift. The lift is great, the flavor fine. It's Dr. Pepper time. It's Dr. Pepper time. It's Dr. Pepper time. Early in the morning of the first day of shooting TV commercials, I was taken to Lake Geneva in nearby Wisconsin for filming at a local arboretum. Several scenarios were portrayed. One was a picnic with the boyfriend. At the picnic grounds, I encountered a swarm of grasshoppers which literally hopped into my blouse. With cameras rolling, those creatures were fluttering all around. The tapes were edited and never showed the real stars. <laughs> Maybe grasshoppers are fans of Dr. Pepper. Probably they were attracted by the sweet drink I was consuming. And consume it I did, gallons of it, until the director was happy with how my mouth touched the bottle and how I swallowed it. It took at least 30 takes per commercial. Just like I started my screen test, I said, Hi, I'm Donna Lauren. What an amazing idea, Dr. Pepper instantly made me recognizable. I'd see a few words and introduce a cartoon character named Harmon, who was a caveman who got zonked by his rival. Now we interrupt the station to notify the nation. Special message to the world, so listen I'd come back on to sing my jingle, and one minute of advertising was history. It took a full day or two to shoot a complete one-minute spot. When it came to the equestrian scene, which was the next concept for a commercial, I was extremely embarrassed. The horse I was to mount was so tall I needed a ladder. My first try getting into the saddle proved to be a disaster. I swung my leg over the saddle, landing on the back end of it, behind it, trying to lift up and over the hump that separated me from where my bottom was supposed to rest. It was exhausting. Exerting a great amount of effort and trying to sustain a smile, my derriere finally slid into the curves of the saddle. After a long day of making my first commercial, Maury, my dad, and I were again limoed back to the hotel. I never thought to embark on the matter of my sleep privacy. Dr. Pepper was providing us with an elaborate hotel suite, but there never was a discussion of my having any privacy from sleeping with my dad. A 16-year-old young woman would normally want that for herself, and surely the company could have provided it for this. But the truth is, my codependency with my family and the fears that they instilled blurred any chances for healthy sleeping conditions. Instead, this arrangement was a constant reminder of how my parents brainwashed me into believing I would be kidnapped or sexually molested. Of course, my dad's intentions were honorable, but his approach reinstilled the old memories of the bars on my window, 
I felt helpless and surrendered once again to his plan. My dad convinced me that it would be no good for him to be in the next room. If I were alone, I wouldn't be safe, he explained emphatically. So case closed. This pattern continued throughout my years with Dr. Pepper. It was all about control. I literally could not have a thought of my own. Fear has a way of clouding the truth and creating an absence of courage and clarity. My dad and I spent a total of 10 days cohabitating on this occasion. Schedule as follows. September 16th, arrive in Chicago. In my diary, my dad's handwriting indicates I'm to record and film the first batch of commercials. He then wrote, starting the following day, 8 a.m., hairdresser, 666 North Michigan, 9 a.m., Sarah Productions, 16 East Ontario, 10 a.m., location. This schedule repeated through Friday of that week and continued on Monday through Thursday when we departed for Los Angeles. I was given Saturday and Sunday off. It was lucky for my dad that one of his best friends, Harold, lived in nearby Skokie, a suburb of Chicago. Harold had two daughters close to my age. They came into the city for a visit and just loved the penthouse suite we were living in. Room service for all and plenty of Dr. Pepper. Those teenage girls seemed so innocent. I admired the relationship they had and the way that their father demonstrated an affection toward them that was unfamiliar to me. My dad's friend must have known about the secret being withheld from me. The climate of our visit was kept polite. I just played my role to please my dad and really couldn't relate to those girls, even though I was the same age. Once the series of commercials were completed, we returned home to L.A., it was a long 10 days for my mom to take care of my brothers, Alan and Ricky without the support and presence of my dad. She felt lost without him. He needed her as well. At home, the air was thick with my parents conjuring up my next move. As long as I practiced and stayed out of their way after dinner, we could coexist. My new bedroom became my retreat. I'd listen to my transistor radio and think of songs I'd like to sing. I had a really hard time enjoying singing. It was more of an expression of my sadness and frustration. Edie Gourmet was a vocalist who I could relate to, and so I chose to sing along with her chart-topping album, Gourmet Sings Showstoppers, songs like Thou Swell, written by Rogers and Hart, for the 1927 musical The Connecticut Yankee, and Johnny One Note, another Rogers and Hart tune, were my choices for certain performances for Dr. Pepper functions, as well as a guest appearance on the Red Skelton show. I felt confident about my vocal skills, and that was gratifying to a point, but there was a disconnect emotionally. The coaching that I received from my dad focused on more of a mechanical approach to pronouncing every word and singing every note on pitch. Choosing a Gershwin song like Summertime empowered me to connect with my feelings. And Fats Domino's song, Ain't That a Shame. Ooh, I love that song. It took me right into that space of emotional despair. You made me cry when you said goodbye. Ain't that a shame? 
Where the Boys Are, a Connie Francis song, touched my heart when I sang it at Camp Pendleton for an audience of Marines that were on their way to Vietnam. Because I never recorded these songs, my dad couldn't restrict me the way he usually did at a recording session. With each song I chose to sing, my mind wandered into how I would look and what I would wear, sort of a dream state, mind helped me express a bit of an image I thought would make me feel pretty. Simplicity patterns were always close by to assist me with form and function. I'd lose myself in those thoughts of velvet and satin brocade, a nipped-in waist and crinoline petticoat. No one could invade my thoughts in this particular area, even though my mother helped me make each garment. The only issue that she dictated was the hemline. They had to be just above my knee. Essentially, the planning and sewing became an escape from reality for me. This is the one time my mother decided to cooperate. And as the hemlines got shorter, I got my way, the mod way. Chaperoning me was always a big issue, and usually it was my dad who accompanied me on long trips. Whenever my mother had an opportunity to travel with me and feel special, she did. On one occasion, just before my 16th birthday, I was booked to do a concert at the Cow Palace. The star of the show was Marvin Gaye. On the same bill were Chubby Checker, The Four Seasons, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, and Bobby Freeman. H.B. Barnum was conducting his 30-piece orchestra. When it was my turn to go on stage, all I could see were 34,000 eyes staring back at me. It was the largest crowd I'd ever performed for. Sitting front and center was Joe Johnson, the president of Challenge Records, the label for whom I recorded If You Love Me, and On the Good Ship Lollipop, the songs that I performed that night. Marvin Gaye had so much sex appeal that he drove his fans wild. He had to be lifted up and carried out by guards after his performance. I noticed that his face was pale, almost a light green. Was he in shock? Or was it the pancake makeup designed to lighten black artists' complexions? His fans were trying to grab at him while my mother couldn't restrain herself from confessing that he had told her how lovely and beautiful she was and proposed that he wanted her. Quote, if I wasn't a married woman, she told me, I might have taken him up on that, unquote. I was stunned at her lack of discernment, but of course she was ever faithful to my father as he was to her. I was invited subsequently to perform at a surf party concert starring the Beach Boys at the same arena. I vividly recall there was only one day between shooting my first series of Dr. Pepper commercials and flying to San Francisco to do this concert. What a thrill to meet Dionne Warwick and share the stage with the likes of little Stevie Wonder and Jan and Dean. Another superstar, Cassius Clay, who we now know as Muhammad Ali, showed up backstage ranting, I'm the greatest. Not a minute was wasted when it came to my career. The pace was really picking up. 
I was back in the studio at Challenge on Tuesday recording Dream World and Remember Me, I'm the One Who Loves You. A mop-headed man named Sonny Bono was hired to arrange these two songs. My dad and I then set off to do PR in San Francisco on Friday, back by Saturday and school on Monday and Tuesday, before flying to Dallas on American Airlines for a Dr. Pepper board of directors meeting and an open house for a new bottling plant. Nine in the morning, I entered a boardroom with 12 Southern gentlemen, all wearing very conservative suits. The phrase, opposites attract, come to mind. I was anything but the quintessential Southern belle. Imagine yourself being a teenager from Los Angeles, raised in a Jewish household, going before a board of directors. They all looked at me as though I were representing profits of their next campaign. But what is the common ground? Their collective age is probably a thousand years old. I'm only 16 and female. I should feel a sense of power, and I do. But I also know who the employee is and who the employer is. The common ground I chose was kindness. They treated me special and I delivered the same to them. I was very important to them. I represented more sales. It just goes to show you, never judge a book by the cover. As cliche as that is, it's oh so true. There was one familiar face, John Simmons, who I met previously in Los Angeles for an official signing of my contract. He was VP of Advertising for Dr. Pepper. Then I met Mr. Parker, who was the CEO, and W.W. Foots Clements, the next in line for that position. Another VP that I met was Harry Ellis. I don't know exactly what his title was, but he became the historical librarian for Dr. Pepper. He made it known that he lived on Matzo Ball Hill. Translation, the admission that he was a Jew, an acknowledgement that he knew I was too. Then there was another VP who impressed me, a man named Joe Hughes. He subsequently became CEO. If I had to sum it up, I felt a great sense of equality as the Dr. Pepper girl, age and gender aside. On November 6th, how surreal it was to co-host a TV special, the Dr. Pepper Celebrity Party with Dick Clark. Being chosen as the new Dr. Pepper girl catapulted me into a status of this height overnight. A whole host of my peers would be there, although their careers were well established and mine was just beginning. It was absolutely outrageous that I would be co-mingling with my idols, Annette and Frankie, Connie Stevens, Wayne Newton, Johnny Crawford, George Hamilton, John Ashley and Deborah Wally, Jan and Dean, and Johnny Mathis. 
It leaves me breathless just thinking about it. I would gather as soon as you look in, you say, this can't be Saturday afternoon, that's for sure. Yes, we have a little something special planned for you today, and I think we're going to have fun for the next hour, because right now we are in Hollywood, California, in a recorded program, of course, because it's nighttime. A celebrity party. Our Dr. Pepper friends put it together, and uh, I hear voices out here. I think we've got some late arrivals. Yes, by golly, these are the people that uh, are our special invited guests. A party, by golly, a celebrity party. And you're here in all your living glory. I think you'll have fun, and you'll see and hear some interesting things and interesting people. I know by all means that uh, you'll see a familiar face here and there. I decided to make a special dress for the event in burgundy silk. My work ethic was so strong that all I could focus on was making my dress. On the day of the celebrity party, out the door by 8.30 a.m. and at the door of F&S Fabrics by 9 a.m. Bring my fabric home and begin designing and constructing the garment. As my mother stitched the seams by machine, I began turning my spaghetti straps inside out preparing them to be attached to the bodice. By the end of the day, the dress was ready to be worn. Hair and makeup out the door, this time with Maury as my chaperone, leaving my mother at home. Essentially, my focus was work. Driving up to Bob Marcucci's pink Spanish villa right up in the Hollywood Hills, we were greeted by Mr. Dillon from Grant Advertising. Bob Marcucci was Fabian and Frankie Avalon's manager. Mr. Dillon told me that Dr. Pepper is sponsoring the show. Your job is to follow Dick Clark around as he is hosting the celebrities that come to join us for this TV party. We want you to sing one song live with the band that's here to play for the party. Try and rehearse a song with them. I found the band members of the Challengers and with my father's supervision decided to sing Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey, a standard that I could play on the piano in a pinch. I was expected to wing it in front of the TV cameras. You know, I, every time you and I meet, whether it's out by the pool or here, I always say, I think Donna is somewhere else. As co-hostess, I think she's about to pound the piano out in the patio. Donna? record I can't make my heart say goodbye for me to sing along to in another segment of the show. Of course I could make this happen. Dick Clark met me. I was standing awestruck in front of the famous American bandstand guy from Philly and I was supposed to act like this equal and co-host. 
a microphone was handed to me and there I was, an official co-host with the one and only Dick Clark. How amazing and fantastic life is when one is thrust into a league they feel they're out of. Shoulder to shoulder with Mr. Clark and Annette, all the celebrities who were there, and they were talking to me. Somehow I came through with flying colors like an old pro. The nickname I had acquired as a child was Trooper. My intuition guided me in this unfamiliar territory on one level. On another level, a surge of adrenaline kicked in that tightened my chest and made it very hard to breathe. Once again, I turned to my companion inhaler to ease my breathing so I could gather my strength. It never failed me. When the taping of the show was over, Mr. Dillon invited me to attend the Rose Bowl parade with him and his companion. I guess he approved of my initiation into a world of upper echelon. A week later on November 14th at 9 a.m., I was taken to L.A. Downtown Superior Courthouse for a court approval of my Dr. Pepper contract. My base pay would have 20% deducted and put to a trust fund until I was 21. And now here's a sneak peek of Donna's interview with Alison Martino of Vintage Los Angeles. Everyone, please welcome Alison Martino, a very dear friend. <laughs> Alison, hi. Hi. It's so nice <laughs> to talk to you. Oh, same here. Like, before we dive into your father's capital days, <laughs> you were with my all-time favorite actor, Brad Pitt, who starred in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Leonardo DiCaprio. What did it feel like being touched by an angel like this? He seems like he's coming from a space of all heart. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's the nicest. I only met him, well, I didn't really even meet him. I saw him shooting, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on on the boulevard. You know, they allowed all of us to, to watch, and it was really exciting. And so I got to see him in that, you know, in character and driving up and down in those really cool cars, the Carmen Gia, and the, it was amazing. <laughs> they uh, totally transformed Hollywood. It, it was exactly the way I remember it in the 60s. I, it's so remarkable. Um, I've seen it really a lot of times. I've seen the movie, like, maybe, I think in the theater I saw it 17 times. <laughs> I know, which is actually, I'm really proud of that number because, <laughs> you know, the movie is long, too. So um, I, I don't remember seeing a movie that many times in the theater since, like, I was a kid. You know, when you were a kid, you see your favorite movie ten times. But this <laughs> one, I, I just had to see it on the big screen because of the detail of all the old L.A., the, everything from the signs to the, you know, the flyers in the window or the posters in the in the window. I just wanted to see it as much as I could because the production design was so extraordinary. It's really, it's really. something that he, you know I just don't think it can be topped, and I really truly believe it's a, a complete masterpiece. Even the story and the ending and all of that is just—it's well, a perfect movie. Yeah, I mean, what a piece of history! You know, um, I had the occasion to recently go up on Silo Drive, where uh, the house was, where the Manson—you know—situation mm -hmm. was. And um, you know, just to be in that in that aura, I, I went to visit a, a John Lautner house, and you know, because I live in one, and so um, 
it's right there. You wind around, and I felt like I was kind of reliving that. Yeah, it's definitely like that. My my parents didn't grow. Well, the house I grew up in wasn't too far from there. I was at the house, well, when it was being torn down. Mm -hmm. I got to see it, and then I saw the house they replaced it with, which you would never even know that's the same house. Oh, dear. It's just so big, and, you know, you don't realize how big those properties are. Yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, they were a little more modest back in the day, and now they're building these monstrosities, and there's no, you know, every inch of the property has to have something on it. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know? um, I totally prefer a small abode and a beautiful garden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's changed so much since I grew up in that neighborhood. It was more of like a na- – it was actually kind of a neighborhood. And uh, now it's just like one monstrosity home after the next, and I don't recognize some of the area. But my parents had just moved to Los Angeles in 68, 69. They were just living in L.A. for the first time when the Manson murders happened. Oh, dear. So she, I mean, of course, I asked my parents all about it when I was younger. It's just something you heard about. Yeah. You feel like you went through it, too, even though you weren't really, I wasn't even alive yet. But yeah. you just, something you hear about, you hear about these murders. I also went to school with Eric Menendez and Lyle Menendez, yeah. um, which was my own, that was a nightmare that I can't even believe that happened to those poor parents. Yeah. I feel like, you know, there's uh, just something in the air about it. And I, I think my parents said they were really nobody had any personal security at their house back then. That's right. You know, and, and no one really had an alarm system. You didn't even know what that was. No. Uh, and so they, everybody was calling Westinghouse oh God. alarm system the next day and installing these alarm systems. And so that was like what that, that wave started all of the we're not going to leave our back door open anymore, you know. Sure, the 60s was just ridden with, uh, you know, these traumas um, that, uh, you know, there's still, you know, the assassination of the Kennedys and Martin Luther King and one after another on television. And, you Mm -hmm. you know, I happened to experience the Kennedy assassination uh, in person, you know, momentarily, but I won't get into that story with you. we can we can save that for another time. Virginia. Yeah, I love talking about all that stuff, you know. Well, I I was approached by Quentin Tarantino's office to give my permission to use a clip of when I sang a duet with Dick Dale in Muscle Beach Party. Oh, oh, and, um, I know, and I and that was about a year before it um, came out, uh-huh. and, um, and and I was never um, notified, so. I guess it ended up on the editing floor. <laughs> well, there may be hope because I think he's going to be cutting some kind of six-hour version at some point. Oh, that's right. I was reading So that. you never know. And I heard him say that in a, in a Q&A myself. So I always thought, like, is that a rumor? And then he said, no, at some point I'll – maybe he's cutting it now during quarantine. Get that six-hour version out, Quentin, please. Yeah. <laughs> I, I need additional scenes. Yeah, um, the 18th viewing. <laughs> yeah, for the eight, well, no, and then I've seen it a bunch of times at home because oh you know I got I got the obviously I bought it so <laughs> I I've seen it so many times it's like that thing where nobody will watch it with me because I'll quote it the whole time so <laughs> I can't stop from that. Wow, that wraps it up for part one of chapter five. Stay tuned for part two. Donna's full interview with Alison Martino. Take care. Yes, love.